September 2nd, 1944. The U.S. Naval Research Laboratory in Philadelphia had a clogged pipe in their facility. Employees knew that whatever created the blockage was dangerous and caustic, but the details were classified. Nevertheless, three volunteers stepped up to fix it. Arnold Kramish, Peter N. Bragg, and Douglas Meeks. They were working to clear the pipe at 1.20 p.m. when it exploded. A mysterious gas spewed from the machinery. The workers coughed and gasped for breath, each inhalation searing their chests. Their skin cracked and bled as the poison boiled them alive. Luckily, Private John Hoffman saw the men fighting for their lives and dashed into the room. He dragged Kramish, Bragg, and Meeks to safety, but his bravery came too late for two of them. Bragg and Meeks died of severe burns hours later. Kramish recovered, but it was a lengthy process. His wounds healed slowly. He was in constant pain. He even went temporarily blind. But his physical suffering couldn't rival the emotional toll of the disaster. Kramish later wrote, the memories of the tragic accident are the saddest and bitterest I know and will remain so the rest of my life. Later, during a private debriefing, Kramish realized his doctors could have treated his injuries if only they'd been told what he was exposed to. Instead, Kramish's superiors let him suffer, all because they didn't want anyone to know that Kramish and his colleagues were killed by a compound most Americans drink every day, fluoride. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is the first of two episodes on artificial water fluoridation. Today, about two-thirds of Americans drink fluoridated tap water. Officially, fluoride strengthens teeth and prevents cavities, but some critics allege the additive is a threat. This episode will explore the history of artificial water fluoridation and look at what the chemical compound does to the human body. We'll also examine some recent studies that suggest fluoride may be the root of major health concerns. Next episode, we'll discuss potential reasons why so many organizations are willing to ignore fluoride's potential risks, including one conspiracy theory that suggests government agencies fluoridate water to decrease people's IQ, making citizens easier to control. Think that sounds unlikely? 
Maybe that's what they want you to believe. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It was 1901, and Dr. Frederick McKay didn't know what to make of his new home. The Colorado air smelled crisp and clean. Degree in hand, he opened a private dental practice in a small mining town called Colorado Springs, and he was eager to meet his new patients. But in his first few exams, McKay found something startling. His client, a lifelong resident of Colorado Springs, opened his mouth revealed teeth covered in brown stains. The discolored splotches left an off-white stripe across the center of his smile. McKay had never seen anything like it before, yet patient after patient displayed the same discoloration. It was so common, the locals even had a word for it, Colorado brown stain, but nobody knew what caused it. After closer examination, McKay found that patients with Colorado brown stain had incredibly healthy teeth. They had fewer dental caries, meaning tooth decay and cavities, than his previous patients in big cities. The brown stains also strengthened the outer surface of the tooth, called the enamel. McKay became determined to find the cause. But that was easier said than done. McKay still hadn't solved the mystery four years later in 1905 when he moved to St. Louis, Missouri. He was astonished to find that his new patients, 800 miles away, had the same brown stain and fewer caries. Caries, a word we'll use frequently throughout this episode, is a medical term for cavities and tooth decay. Despite its moniker, the Colorado brown stain wasn't unique to Colorado. And if it was also common in Missouri, McKay reasoned that it probably existed elsewhere. He just needed to learn what the towns had in common. He began a lengthy process of elimination. For six years, he looked at countless environmental factors, calcium deficiencies, overconsumption of iron, even radioactive waste but nothing held up to scrutiny. Then, in 1923, McKay came across a community in Oakley, Idaho. They had an outbreak of Colorado brown stain shortly after the community switched from private wells to a shared water system, which, for the first time, suggested the splotches came from something in the water. Some of the affected communities in Colorado, Idaho, and Missouri happened to live downriver from aluminum factories. 
McKay theorized that aluminum had seeped into the local water supplies and caused the tooth staining. He just couldn't find any correlation. Instead, McKay inadvertently stumbled into a much larger political issue. Many private citizens had already objected to aluminum manufacturers. They feared their byproducts were polluting their small villages. In an effort to prove aluminum wasn't at fault, H.V. Churchill, chief chemist for the Aluminum Company of America, tested the water in these areas. Churchill might not have found aluminum seeping into the water supply, but he did find a trend. Colorado brown stain was prevalent in communities with large amounts of fluoride in their water. Fluoride refers to any chemical compound that contains the element fluorine. Fluorine is a highly unstable poisonous gas and rarely occurs in a pure form in nature. Fluorine atoms bond with other elements like sodium or calcium, creating more stable molecules. Molecules with fluorine are all known as fluorides, so there's no such thing as pure fluoride. There are natural fluorides in the soil, water, even the air we breathe. But when fluoride is artificially created in the manufacturing process, it can seep into the ground and water. The mystery was solved. Every community with the Colorado brown stain did have fluoridated water, naturally or from factory runoff. But McKay's discovery didn't seem worth celebrating. Sure, most dentists would be glad to prevent tooth decay and caries, but the side effects didn't seem worth it. And yet, his findings inspired the head of the National Institute of Health's Dental Hygiene Unit, Dr. H. Trendley Dean. Dean was intrigued by fluoride's ability to protect teeth. He wondered if there was a way to reap its benefits without staining people's smiles. In 1942, after extensive research, Dr. Dean found the brown spots were only prevalent in areas with high concentrations of fluoride. He theorized that very low doses could strengthen enamel without discoloration. After a lot of trial and error, Dr. Dean identified the ideal concentration, one part per million, which means every liter of water could have one milligram of fluoride, one one-thousandth the weight of a single paperclip, without creating spots. Except some people are highly sensitive to fluoride. Even when it's as diluted as Dr. Dean suggested, Many people still report a defect or discoloration on the enamel. Today, it's referred to as dental fluorosis. In a recent CDC survey, 23% of people in the United States reported this dental fluorosis. Most cases were mild, meaning the spots were light, small, or difficult to see. But 1% developed severe discoloration, which can pit or divot a person's teeth. Now, this was a survey, not a study, meaning they interviewed people and conducted exams, but they didn't manage any experiments or compare rates against control groups. It's possible the rate of fluorosis is much higher, especially milder cases, which are hard to spot. There haven't been any clinical trials for dental fluorosis, so it's hard to say how widespread it really is. 
But most dentists, including Dr. Dean, thought the risk was a fair trade-off. The benefits, healthier teeth for the majority of people, outweighed the costs, ugly brown smiles for the minority. Dr. Dean and other dentists just needed to prove that fluoride was safe and effective. So in 1945, the city of Grand Rapids, Michigan, tested the world's first artificial fluoridation program. Citizens weren't happy about becoming human guinea pigs, but local officials countered with PR campaigns and press releases about fluoride's benefits before the 15-year study even began. But they never finished the experiment. After six years, officials declared the program a success. Carrie's rates dropped by 60%. Despite not having all the data, numerous public agencies rushed to give fluoride a thumbs up. They endorsed fluoridation in 1950, well before the Grand Rapids experiment wrapped up. Inspired by Grand Rapids' success, Muskegon, Michigan, Newburgh, New York, and Evanston, Illinois, all adopted their own programs in the 1950s. From there, water fluoridation initiatives spread throughout the country and the world. The UK explored fluoridation in 1964, and the Republic of Ireland followed suit that same year. In the mid-1900s, global tooth decay rates decreased. The research varies, but studies say caries reduced by 24 to 40 percent among adults. Today, there are 24 countries that add fluoride to their drinking water to fight tooth decay. It's reported that nearly 400 million people drink fluoridated water worldwide. About half of them are in the United States. The Centers for Disease Control says artificial fluoridation is amongst the top 10 most important public health advances of the 20th century. That said, caries rates are also down in Canada, Cuba, and Finland, countries that discontinued their fluoridation programs in the 1990s and 2000s due to public pressure. And they haven't seen an increase in dental caries since. So it's hard to say for sure whether fluoride should get the credit it's given. Maybe the powers that be aren't telling you the whole story. Up next, the science behind water fluoridation. History, politics, true crime. The new Spotify original from ParCast has it all. Hi, I'm Carter, and I am thrilled to tell you about the new series, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. It uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder. She'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as JFK, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. 
Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Now, back to the story. In the early 20th century, Dr. Frederick McKay found that fluoride caused the brown stains on his patient's teeth. It also strengthened enamel and decreased caries. In 1945, Dr. Trenley Dean built on McKay's research and championed the world's first water fluoridation program. As we mentioned earlier, fluoride occurs naturally, and it's not unusual for the compound to seep into local water supplies. But to understand the controversy behind artificial water fluoridation, we need to take a deep dive into the science of fluoride. When ingested, fluoride bonds with mineral components in your teeth, resulting in the creation of a strong molecule called fluorohydroxyapatite. This mineral is highly resistant to acid and is theoretically why fluoridated teeth are less likely to develop caries. But that's not the only way fluoride strengthens your teeth. It can also bond with enamel when it's applied directly to the tooth's surface. Every time you drink a glass of fluoridated water, the additive starts working before you swallow. It's the same basic principles as any topical fluoride treatment or fluoridated toothpaste. A 1999 report from the CDC found that topical fluoride worked better than ingested fluoride. But if we benefit more from topical fluoride, why is it in our drinking water? Especially since we now know the dangers associated with drinking the chemical compound. The earliest artificial water fluoridation programs used sodium fluoride, which was considered safe in low dosages in the 1940s and 50s. But later evidence suggested that sodium fluoride was a carcinogen, meaning it could increase a person's risk of cancer. After that discovery, most water fluoridation programs transitioned to fluorosilicic acid instead. Fluorosilicic acid is derived from phosphorus rocks. When manufacturers heat the rocks, they produce two byproducts, fluoride gas and phosphoric gas. Phosphoric gas is a key ingredient in the production of aluminum, steel, and fertilizer. But the fluoride gas, which is produced in tandem, is pretty useless. Decades ago, the government required corporations to dispose of this excess fluoride gas, but it's an expensive and time-consuming process. Essentially, fluoride gas was diluted in lime, then burned or stored while it broke down naturally, and it required special equipment. Why? Fluoride gas detonates when it comes into contact with oxygen. Today, those companies conveniently sell this byproduct to municipal water agencies. But not as a gas, 
because the vapor is incredibly harmful to the environment. They make it inert using a filter called a wet scrubber, which uses a liquid, generally water, to pull contaminants from a gas. They then ship the slurry directly to water departments across the nation. And private businesses like chemical manufacturer DuPont profit from these fluoridation programs. Tax dollars pay for the fluoride that would otherwise get thrown away at the company's expense. Instead, it's delivered through your tap. According to the World Health Organization, 70 to 90% of the fluoride we consume stays in our body. The rest is filtered through our kidneys and excreted through urine. 99% of the fluoride we keep ends up deposited in our bones and stays there for decades. The rest accumulates in other tissues and organs like the pineal gland. That's a P-shaped gland in our brain that regulates hormones like melatonin, a chemical that maintains our circadian rhythm. Research shows that the pineal gland may also control cardiovascular health, mental wellness, and help fight tumors. Researchers think that the pineal gland may accumulate fluoride at the same rate as your bones. In 1997, dentist Dr. Jennifer Luke conducted a series of autopsies. She found that elderly people have an average of 9,000 fluoride parts per million in their pineal gland, which accumulated after a lifetime of drinking fluoridated water. Remember the one one-thousandth of a paperclip we mentioned earlier? 9,000 parts per million is like dropping two heavier-than-average dice into a liter of water. And all of that is accumulated in a gland the size of a pea. But there's still plenty that scientists don't understand about the pineal gland, meaning it's hard to say exactly how fluoride changes it. Some preliminary studies suggest fluoride leads to early-onset puberty in girls. Others say it disrupts sleep cycles, but nobody can say for sure. The bones in pineal gland aren't the only place fluoride accumulates. We noted earlier that 10 to 30% of the fluoride you drink passes through your kidneys and leaves your body via urine, but the kidneys absorb fluoride as they filter it. Dr. Paul Conant warned in his book, The Case Against Fluoride, that the kidney accumulates more fluoride than all other soft tissues in the body. Long-term fluoride accumulation has been linked to kidney damage, and this creates a dangerous cycle. As malfunctioning kidneys are less efficient at filtering fluoride from the body, thus people with chronic kidney disease can be more at risk of conditions like fluorosis. Even quote-unquote safe fluorides like fluorosilicic acid can cause problems in healthy people. Dental fluorosis creates hardened, dark-colored spots on a patient's teeth. But in skeletal fluorosis, those spots appear on your bones. Skeletal fluorosis can be painful and make your joints stiffen. In severe cases, it can bend the spine so badly, the patient can no longer walk. It's hard to estimate how widespread skeletal fluorosis is, since the symptoms are similar to osteoporosis. 
A 2002 study by the International Conference on Water Resources Management in Arid Regions estimated that tens of millions of people have skeletal fluorosis. Anti-fluoride activists suggest the number may be even higher due to rampant misdiagnoses. Skeletal fluorosis is most common in countries like India, China, and South Africa. Those nations have dangerously high natural concentrations of fluoride in their soil, three to five times more than the recommended one part per million. Many of those countries don't have the resources to filter fluoride from their wells, and they may be consuming fruits and vegetables which absorb fluoride through the soil. In their case, the danger isn't artificial fluoridation, it's unregulated natural fluoride. Though less intentional, natural fluoride cases highlight another problem with artificial water fluoridation. It's virtually impossible to regulate If a doctor gives you a prescription, they'll specify a dose based on your age, sex, and weight. A 200-pound male bodybuilder needs a stronger dosage than a 100-pound 14-year-old girl. But everyone who uses a community water system gets the same concentration of fluoride. Adults drink the same water as children. Consumption is unrelated to height, weight, sex, or age. The only way to control dosage is to limit our tap water intake. But what happens to those who need more water than others? Athletes, bottle-fed babies, and diabetics drink more water than the average person, which means they're more likely to develop a fluoride overdose, otherwise called fluoride toxicity. This is a serious but rare medical condition marked by nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Dental and skeletal fluorosis can also be warning signs of fluoride toxicity. But the fluoride in water is so diluted, it would be almost impossible to get a toxic dose from the tap. In fact, Melanie Amato of the Ohio Department of Health noted, you would have to drink bathtubs and bathtubs of water before getting too much fluoridation. In fact, you would die of water toxicity or drowning before you would overdose on fluoride. Sure, nobody drinks an entire bathtub of water in one sitting, but if you drink the recommended eight glasses a day, you'll consume roughly 80 gallons in about five and a half months. That's a little more than two bathtubs of water a year. So if you drink fluoridated water your entire life, you'll easily consume Amato's bathtubs and bathtubs of water before you're old enough to vote. But there's a big difference between slow exposure and a massive dose at once. A 2006 report from the World Health Organization explained that there's very little value in discussing lifetime exposure. It's the concentration, not the accumulation, that triggers fluoride-related illness. But that runs counter to some key facts about fluoridation. For example, the fluoride in human bones has a half-life of 20 years. That means if I have a gram of fluoride in my bones right now, it'll take 20 years for my body to break it down to half a gram. But if I keep drinking fluoridated water, the compound is accumulated faster than I can get rid of it. Even so, most government agencies 
including the World Health Organization, the CDC, and the American Dental Association, agree that fluoridated water is generally safe. Assuming you want to take them at their word, the U.S. government has a long history of covering up fluoride's dangers. For decades, fluoride's toxicity was treated as a matter of national security, all thanks to fluoride's role in one of America's largest and most expensive covert operations, the initiative responsible for designing and deploying the world's first atomic bomb, the Manhattan Project. Up next, we'll unpack fluoride's role in nuclear warfare. Now, back to the story. In the mid-1950s, American municipalities began adding fluoride to their drinking water. Fluoride is a general term for all compounds that include fluorine, and they can range from harmlessly inert to incredibly toxic. In 2015, Dr. Tom Locke of the Washington Dental Service Foundation Board described fluoridated water as vital to public health. Besides the United States, dozens of countries have artificial fluoridation programs today. In total, about 5% of the world's population still drinks fluoridated water. And all of that fluoride has to come from somewhere. As we mentioned before, the chemical compound is a byproduct in the manufacture of aluminum, fertilizer, and other products. But in 1945, most of those industries weren't selling massive quantities of fluorosilicic acid or sodium fluoride yet. They were dumping it. One of the earliest fluoride manufacture operations was located in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where uranium was refined for the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project was a top-secret wartime operation employing over 130,000 people across dozens of laboratories and military bases. The United States initially allocated $500 million to the program, the equivalent of over $7 billion today. But within three years, the Manhattan Project spent four times that original budget. Their goal was to manufacture the world's first atomic bomb, and the clock was ticking. Nazi Germany had their own nuclear initiative and had successfully split an atom in a process called fission. It was the first step to building a nuclear weapon. In other words, the United States was behind. American scientists were under immense pressure to solve the atom's secrets before it was too late. One of their earliest challenges lay in uranium refinement. One particular uranium isotope called U-235 is highly unstable, meaning it contains a lot of explosive energy, which makes uranium ideal for creating nuclear weaponry. But U-235 never naturally occurs alone in nature. Instead, it binds with another uranium isotope called U-238, which is very stable and not useful for generating nuclear energy. Manhattan Project scientists needed to find a way to separate U-235 from U-238. They tried to heat them or use magnets, but both methods were inefficient. 
A researcher named Phil Abelson discovered a solution. He could get U-235 isotopes to bond with fluoride instead of U-238. The resulting compound was called uranium hexafluoride. Fluoride's role in uranium refinement was a closely guarded secret. According to investigative reporter Christopher Bryson, researchers didn't even write the word fluoride on their official reports. They were too afraid that Abelson's breakthrough would lead to Soviet or Axis spies. They referred to it in code as the gas or fresh air. But if the corrosive gas were to seep from a pipe, it could explode or burn every employee on site. And at the time, many of them had no idea what they were working with. Uranium hexafluoride was so caustic that it wore down Manhattan Project machinery. In response, a team at Columbia University developed another fluoride called fluorocarbon just to protect the equipment. Fluorocarbons, made of fluoride and carbon, are atomically dense. Think of them like a wall made of liquid. If scientists coated a pipe in the protective compound, oxygen, hydrogen, or uranium hexafluoride molecules wouldn't be able to inflict damage. Which meant scientists also had to classify their research on fluorocarbons. On official paperwork, they were referred to as Joe's stuff. Many workers assigned to the Manhattan Project didn't know they were developing the atomic bomb, let alone handling fluoride. Nor did they know its risks, which meant nobody knew how to keep themselves safe in case of an accident. According to The Fluoride Deception by Christopher Bryson, an industrial disaster struck a top-secret Cleveland, Ohio facility on October 9, 1945. A factory worker named Gloria Porter watched in horror as a tank of caustic fluoride burst open. She scrambled to safety while toxic gas engulfed her co-workers. Their bodies dissolved before her eyes. She noted that one colleague looked like a walking skeleton after the acid stripped away his flesh. But these accidents weren't limited to government facilities. In 1946, a farmer named Paul Martin opened a ranch in Oregon. The idyllic pasture lands shared a border with a Reynolds metal aluminum plant, which used hydrofluoric acid, otherwise known as hydrogen fluoride, in their production processes. For nearly a decade, Martin dealt with inexplicable disasters on his land. His cows dropped dead without any identifiable illnesses or injuries. Strange etchings and divots appeared on his farmhouse windows as if the air had burned the glass. Worst of all, Martin and his family got sick. Frequently, they felt winded or too exhausted to perform daily chores. Burns appeared on their skin. Their joints cracked with each movement. They saw multiple doctors before they were diagnosed with subacute fluorosis, a mild form of fluoride poisoning. After that, they moved far away from the factory and its toxic fumes, and their health improved significantly. 
1955, the Martins filed a lawsuit against Reynolds Metals, alleging the company had poisoned them with gaseous hydrofluoric acid emissions. The jury awarded the Martins $48,000, the equivalent of nearly $460,000 today. Sadly, their case was common. In The Fluoride Deception, Christopher Bryson summarized, from June 1945 to October 1946, there were 392 chemical injuries from uranium hexafluoride, 58 injuries from fluoride, 21 from hydrogen fluoride, and six injuries from fluorocarbons. To be clear, most of these disasters involved uranium, hydrogen, and carbon compounds, none of which are used in artificial water fluoridation programs, but each of those substances can be combined with fluorine. When elements form new compounds, their qualities change. For example, pure sodium can explode without warning. Pure chlorine can irritate your lungs and make it difficult to breathe. But when you combine the two, you get a safe compound, sodium chlorine or table salt. Likewise, Fluoride compounds can be safe, even though they contain elements that are dangerous in other forms. But those arguments didn't stop an anti-water fluoridation movement from forming. Before Grand Rapids began its first artificial fluoridation program in 1945, activists suggested that fluoridation was a communist plot. They warned that Marxists were poisoning American water to weaken U.S. citizens. Other critics complained it was unethical to experiment on individuals who hadn't consented. If someone doesn't want to drink fluoridated tap water, the only alternative is to buy bottled water, which is expensive and may not be viable for low-income households. Especially considering that some bottled water companies either use tap water or fluoridate their product anyway. In recent studies, scientists have found new and alarming dangers in fluoride that were previously overlooked. We should note, however, that the research is recent enough that conclusions are still being drawn. In 1990, researchers with the U.S. National Toxicology Program, a subdivision of the National Institute of Environmental Health Services, found a correlation between fluoride exposure and a bone cancer called osteosarcoma. That study tracked fluoride consumption and osteosarcomas in vermin. Male rats drinking heavily fluoridated water were more likely to develop bone cancer. Yet, female rats seemed unaffected. In 2006, the Harvard School of Public Health also found a link between fluoridation and osteosarcoma in male rodents, but the results varied too much from the first study to give the theory any credence. Since this study, analysts have compared cancer rates in cities that fluoridate their water and those that don't, but they found no concrete evidence suggesting fluoride exposure causes cancer in humans. Furthermore, the rodent studies have been criticized as unscientific. The rats drank water with fluoride concentrations up to 800 parts per million, well above the standard one part per million that most cities use. Nevertheless, the American Cancer Society isn't ready to dismiss the link. 
on their website, they say osteosarcoma is a rare cancer. Only about 400 cases are diagnosed in children and teens each year in the United States. If fluoride increased the risk only slightly, it might not be picked up by these types of studies. In other words, the studies may conflict because fluoride only increases your cancer risk by a marginal amount, but it's something. Cancer isn't the only modern health concern associated with fluoride. In 1991, a research team led by F.F. Lin of Xinjiang Institute conducted an IQ study on Chinese children. They wanted to see if iodine deficiencies corresponded with lower intelligence. Instead, they stumbled on a different discovery. Children who drank fluoridated water had lower IQs than those with unfluoridated water. In 1992, a team compared children between the ages of 7 and 16 in Mongolia. Those who grew up with fluoridated water, again, had lower IQs. A 1994 review of China's Shandong district replicated Lin's same results. It was fluoride, not iodine, that caused the IQ deficiency. In 2012, a joint team of Chinese and American researchers reviewed all the previous results and identified overall trends. They found that childhood exposure to highly fluoridated water can decrease a person's IQ, but by less than one-half of one point. To be clear, IQ, or intelligence quotient, is not a measure of how smart someone is. It gauges how well someone can reason and problem-solve. A person with a high IQ may have an easier time in school, but it says nothing about their emotional intelligence, their ability to focus, or their creative abilities. People with an IQ between 85 and 115 are considered average, but that's a 30-point range. It's hard to imagine half an IQ point would make a difference in a person's day-to-day life. But who knows? Fluoride might have other impacts on intelligence that we haven't discovered. There's a lot that scientists still don't understand about fluoride exposure. It might increase your cancer risk. It might lower your IQ. It might change how your pineal gland works. All these allegations need more evidence before we can say for sure. But it appears no one's looking into fluoride's safety. Almost like pro-fluoride activists don't want us to know the truth. For decades, we've been told that fluoride strengthens our teeth, but even the dental benefits are questionable. Chemist and anti-fluoride activist Dr. Paul Conant noted that there has never been a single randomized clinical trial to demonstrate fluoridation's effectiveness or safety. Generally speaking, double-blind randomized trials occur in controlled settings where researchers can eliminate other factors that might influence results. Why haven't these trials taken place? It may be because a lot has changed since fluoridation programs began. The first toothbrushes with synthetic bristles were gaining popularity in the 1940s. Fluoridated toothpaste came a decade later. Semi-annual checkups became the norm in the 50s. Prior to that, seeing a dentist was the equivalent of going to the emergency room. It was because you had to. 
meaning artificial water fluoridation programs coincided with an overall uptick in preventative dental care. And without clinical trials, there's no way to tell if fluoride programs actually decreased caries, especially with so many other factors at play. But we do know that over the last 50 years, cavity and caries rates have gone down. A 1991 study found that 12-year-olds in the United States had half as many cavities as 12-year-olds from the 1970s. But correlation doesn't equal causation, especially since many countries that don't artificially fluoridate have seen similar decreases. Some data suggests that fluoride exposure can actually damage teeth, as dental fluorosis can make them brittle. It's baffling that authorities are willing to ignore the evidence about fluoride's possible harms, especially when it doesn't offer the benefits they claim. There's a lot of conflicting evidence about the additive, but groups like the publicly funded Centers for Disease Control and the American Dental Association remain adamantly pro-fluoride. Next time, we'll explore why that may be the case. Perhaps it's because of conspiracy theory number one. Communist sympathizers infiltrated the U.S. government in the 1950s. They introduced dangerous fluoridation programs to intentionally sicken American citizens, and those programs never stopped. Conspiracy theory number two. The U.S. government turns a blind eye to fluoride's dangers because they're in the pocket of big manufacturers. Companies like Colgate, Procter & Gamble, and Johnson & Johnson make a profit on fluoridated products, and they bribe researchers to lie and say it's healthy. And conspiracy theory number three, the United States government intentionally poisons citizens with fluoride to lower public IQ, and make Americans easier to control. This Wednesday, we'll try to determine whether fluoride is a health supplement, a dangerous toxin, or something else entirely. In the meantime, sit tight and keep an eye on your drinking water. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Allie Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 
It's the most powerful position in American politics, and arguably the world. But behind the oath to preserve, protect, and defend lie dark secrets posed to leave some legacies in disgrace. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from ParCast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.